Today's reading is Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, you are dismissed to King's Quest as the rest of us are seated. You may have noticed that I brought my grown-up sippy cup up with me in case my throat gets dry. Hopefully I won't need it, but if I do, please bear with me. I've, been, I've had people introduce me uh, in the past before I, before I preach somewhere, but it's never been an introduction done by someone with a British accent, which adds, which it just feels to me like it adds a whole new level of, of seriousness and class to it. So <laughs> thank you, Alex, for that kind introduction. I'm grateful to have this opportunity to bring the word to you today, especially as part of a series on Philippians, which is, amongst Paul's letters, is, is uniquely warm and, and joyful. The recurring theme that we've explored over the last four weeks in our study of this book is one of newness, the new aspects of a life devoted to following Christ that Paul wanted the Philippians to experience and that we are to experience as well. This morning, the aspect we're going to talk about is the new responsibilities that come with following Christ. The Christian life, more so than any other pursuit, yields greater benefits the longer that we practice it. One of those benefits comes comes from the study of Scripture. I can revisit a particular passage at different times in my life and find that the passage says something different than what I first thought. And even if I understood a piece of it the first time, I often find in later study that it's saying so much more than what I initially perceived. I had this experience while preparing for this lesson. Most of my Christian life, when I have thought of Philippians 2, my attention has been focused on the first 11 verses, which our brother Jerry Giles did such a wonderful job with last week. But verses verses 1 through 11 is such a beautiful expression of the gospel and a powerful call to us to follow Christ's example that it almost effortlessly sticks in our minds, or at least it does for me. I didn't ignore the six verses that follow that make up our text this morning, but I do think that until I started prepping this lesson, I failed to give them the attention that they deserve and apply them accordingly in my life. Our text this morning, verses 12 through 18, is actually dependent on the text preceding it. 12 through 18 completes a set of instructions that actually go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 27. There Paul calls on his brothers and sisters in Philippi to live lives worthy of the gospel, particularly in unity. For Paul, the Christian life that is worthy of the gospel is lived in one mind and one spirit 
with other Christians, striving together for the glory of God against and in spite of the persecution that both Paul and the Philippians were experiencing at this time. He even states that this unity and shared labor and purpose in the face of persecution is a rebuke to those who persecute them. It's unfortunate that there's a chapter division between, between verse 130 and verse 2-1 because on initial reading, one could think that Paul is moving on to a new set of teachings. He isn't. Rather, 2-1 continues the instructions begun in 127. All of the instructions in chapter 2 should be understood in the context of the conflict and persecution that Paul and the Philippians were experiencing when the letter was written. That's why the first word of chapter 2, depending on your translation, is either so or therefore. The comfort and encouragement Paul writes about at the beginning of chapter 2 is comfort and encouragement in the face of a hostile world. And it is against that hostile world that he wants the Philippians to follow the example of Christ in their relationships with one another. And that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning. Now, as it happens, our text, like chapter 2, verse 1, begins with, a therefore. The therefore means that all of the instructions that follow are based on the foundation that Paul laid out in the first 11 verses of the chapter. Christ humbling himself and being obedient to the point of a physically excruciating and humiliating death on the cross and the Lord subsequently raising him from the dead and exalting him over all of the earth. Let's look again at verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The word translated as obey should not be taken as a dogmatic adherence to rules and regulations. Paul is appealing to their shared history and his own awareness of their growing devotion to Christ. What's more, he affirms that the Philippians have only grown in their devotion. Even without the presence of Paul, their father in the faith, to guide them. The seed that Paul planted and watered in Philippi has yielded a great harvest of believers. The obedience of the Philippians was not the bending of the will to a set of rules and regulations, but the natural result of their true devotion to Christ. This is the first new responsibility to cultivate our devotion to Christ. This devotion is to be cultivated as a community. A community of devoted Christians works out their salvation together. Please understand that Paul's instruction to work out their salvation should absolutely not be taken as an endorsement of works-based salvation. In Paul's letters that we, that we have, he emphatically denies the notion that we can earn our salvation or, or be righteous on our own. Once in Ephesians, 2 Timothy and Titus, five times in Galatians, and 11 times in Romans. There is no works-based salvation or works-based righteousness. It's also important to remember that he is addressing a community that already believes in Christ. Individual salvation is already assured. And just as the individual Christian's life is to be shaped by his or her salvation, the Christian community's life is to be shaped by their shared salvation. Okay, our, our, li- our individual lives are to be shaped by our salvation. And when we come together as a community, our community is to be shaped by being composed of saved people. The fellowship of saved people of believers is to look different and be different in substance and nature 
than any other form of fellowship on this earth. In short, Paul's message is, in these verses, is each one of you is saved. Live together accordingly. This is our second new responsibility, to live together as saved people. Paul doesn't want them to trivialize the community or take it for granted. So he tells them to live out their, their salvation together with fear and trembling. Again, the, the translators may do with the words that they had in English, but fear and trembling should not be taken as cringing, cowardice, or, merely, or, or jumping out of our skin at the mere mention of the Lord. Rather, it's an awe of the Lord who has saved, who has saved them and us, and, and it's a respect for the importance of the community and gratitude for the community. Make no mistake, the church made up as it is of flawed, stumbling, messy people, difficult people, challenging people, but that's not here, right? So I'm speaking hypothetically. Difficult, challenging people. The church is a form of grace. It is a gift to the believer. Jesus gives a very stern instruction about how we treat that gift in Matthew chapter 25, verse 40. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. If you don't remember anything else you hear this morning, please remember this. How we treat each other matters to the Lord. To drive home the point that he is not teaching a works-based salvation, Paul makes the first declaration in this letter that... He will revisit this later, but for the first time in this letter, he emphasizes our righteousness is a gift from God. We can work out our salvation together because God himself is shaping and pointing our will towards the good and giving us the means, the power, the righteousness to carry that will out in our lives. He starts his work in each individual Christian's life, not by pointing us toward a set of rules, but by transforming our nature and renewing our minds, as he said in Romans 12. And then he brings it to fruition, again, in the Christian community. And this is our third new responsibility, to recognize the Lord's work in us. So how do we work out our salvation? He tells us in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. No Christian fellowship can be destroyed by outside forces. Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. The greatest threat to the, to the Philippian church was never the persecution being inflicted on them, but rather the internal conflict that Paul is attempting to address here. We are never told in Scripture to avoid, to avoid conflict at all cost, but as a... But as a people who have God himself shaping our will and empowering our work, we should be able to discern what is worth fighting over. And even then, if we follow the instructions given at the beginning of the chapter in verses 2 to 4, that is, if we are of the same mind, have the same love, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, humbly count others more significant than ourselves, and look to the interests of others over our own interests, then we can handle our conflicts in a manner that is pleasing to God and does not destroy our fellowship. But this was not the way that the conflicts at the church in Philippi were being handled. Rather, they were complaining and arguing. 
do you want to know how to destroy a church? Start an argument. Buy into an idea that I have subscribed to in the past and I've encountered in various churches over the years, which is that my understanding of Scripture is perfect, and if, and if everyone else just loved Jesus as much as me, they would see that I'm right and everything would be fine. And unfortunately, I, in, I, one thing I've learned is that I'm not the only person who's ever suffered from this misconception. You could also buy into the contemporary mindset that if you don't get your way in everything, then somehow your rights are being violated and you need to do something about that. And, uh, and the consequences don't matter of what you do to get your way. Our human nature loves a fight. If the church is a body, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, then complaints and disputes and, the, and these fights are the equivalent of cancer or rejecting an organ transplant. It's, it's very quickly and very easily fatal if not addressed. Do you want to know what threatens this church? You can start with me. You can start with my wife. You can start with Alex. You can start with anybody who's been on this stage this morning. Why are we a threat to this church? Because we're a part of it. Nothing from the outside will prevail against us. But it's very easy for people who are on the inside to turn against one another. And that will spread, again, like cancer, and can very quickly and easily destroy a church. You want to see a threat to the church? Look to your left. Look to your right. Look in front of you. Look behind you. And most importantly, look in a mirror, and you will see a threat to this church. A body that turns on itself will not survive. The gates of hell can't destroy, destroy a church, but contentious members can do so easily. This is our fourth new responsibility. Abstain from complaining or arguing. In verse 15, Paul promises the Philippians and us that if we go about our work together while avoiding these two sins of arguing and complaining, then together we can be regarded as blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom they, you, we shine as lights in the world. The Philippian church, of course, existed in the Roman Empire and all of its pagan pagan, decadent, and idolatrous glory. It is most likely that the motive of those who persecuted the Philippian church was the Christians' refusal to participate in pagan temple practices and their insistence that there is only one God and that God is not Caesar. Their faith and their perseverance in the face of persecution made them shine against the darkness of their world and illuminate the darkness of their world. But Paul wanted them to shine even brighter. And the only way they could do that was by following the example of Christ in their relationships with one another. Fortunately, we don't live in a crooked and twisted generation, right? No, the truth is every generation since the fall has been twisted and crooked somehow. Really, the only thing that changes is the type of corruption. We trade out one corruption for another, one set of sins for another. We too are children of God in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. The shape and look of the corruption may be different, but the outcome is the same as it has been since the fall. Another generation, wandering in the dark, chasing after every false hope, every new trend, every empty philosophy, every spirit of the age, which changes with the wind. But the Lord shines light into the dark, and he does it through us. Jesus said that his disciples are the light of the world. Light requires fuel, and for us, that fuel is found in the disciplines and the sacraments. 
But as this passage tells us, we also find fuel for the light in our community. We are to give that fuel to others and to, and to receive it from others. This fellowship of the saints. While reflecting on this passage, I realized how much other believers have added fuel to my light. In a particularly challenging point in my life, when my light was almost completely burned out, I told a brother that I didn't have enough faith to go forward. And this brother promised me that until my trial ended, that he would have enough faith for both of us. And he kept that promise. That kept my light from going out. Last night, Daniel Long added a little fuel to my light with a brief encouraging text to let me know that he was praying for me. And sometimes that's all it takes. In verse 16, Paul calls on the Philippians to continue holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me, even though he's in prison, even though he, he says that he's, he expects to be released, but he didn't have a guarantee. He, he rejoices, and he wants them to rejoice with him in, no matter what. We know that Paul isn't just writing to the disciples, but to his friends, his children in the faith who first heard the gospel from him. Because of this, he's not afraid to get personal with them. Paul is confident that he will be released from his current imprisonment, but even if he is wrong and he dies in prison, he will die rejoicing if the Philippians hold to their faith. That is love. That is the spiritual love, the Christian love that is different from all other love in the world. I will go to my fate with a smile on my face if my brothers and sisters are faithful. That's the end result of living together as saved people. Whatever happens to us in this life, if we all persevere in our obedience to Christ, we will have cause to rejoice. Once again, I ask you to look around you, at your brothers and sisters, the people that God is working in to will and to work for his good pleasure. These are the people with whom you live out your salvation. And we do it by holding to our new responsibilities. We cultivate our devotion to Christ. We live as saved people together. We recognize the Lord's work in us. We abstain from complaining or arguing. And finally, we shine in the dark. We'll close in prayer, and then the lesson is yours. Father, we thank you for the grace you've shown to each of us. But today we thank you for the grace of Christian community. We ask that you prevent us from ever taking this community of saints for granted. We thank you for your work in us, that you shape our will to your work. We ask that you fill us with your light and that we can shine that light in the darkness of our lost generation. Finally, we ask that you help us to hold fast to the word of life, which is your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.